Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Laura, would you read our purpose statement and Sangha guidelines, please? Yes. Becoming Buddha Cross River Meditation Center preserves and presents a human Buddhist Dhamma initially recorded as the second book of the Pali Canon, the Sutta Pitaka. Our practice is informed from over 300 curated, curated suttas restored by John to their original intent and practical focus. Our practice is empty of imagined insight, magical thinking, mystical grasping after, and unfounded speculation. Our teachers and students remain focused on these suttas to develop a direct mindful experience of establishing a well-concentrated, supple, and conflict-free mind through the Eightfold Path. It is the Eightfold Path that Siddhartha Gautama taught over the last 45 years of his life with the sole purpose of abandoning self-inflicted stress and suffering through ending ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Patimoksha means toward liberation. These guidelines support a well-informed and well-focused Sangha and establish the most effective environment for Dhamma practice always focused on liberation from ignorance. Becoming Buddha Cross River Meditation Center is a true refuge from the chaos in the world and ideological contradictions and foundational confusion prevalent in modern Buddhism by common agreement. Our practice is framed by the Eightfold Path, which establishes a skillful balance of jhana meditation, sutta study, Sangha participation, and daily individual Dhamma practice. When gathered for Dhamma class, we refer only to the Buddha's Dhamma as restored by John and presented by our teachers. When gathered as a Sangha, we accept responsibility for maintaining the gentle integrity of our Sangha. When gathered as a Sangha, we are free of grasping after magical, mystical, and speculative, speculative concepts and fabricated experiences. When gathered as a Sangha, we practice wise restraint. Questions or confusion about verbiage or arising from comparisons to other modern Buddhist practices, modern Buddhist teachers, or what they are teaching are not a part of our Dhamma classes or Sangha discussions and should be addressed directly to our teachers outside of Dhamma class. Individual class suttas are linked in our newsletter for home study prior to class. Thank you, Laura. So, we just concluded a, um, a three-class structured study on emptiness that followed our structured study on the Eightfold Path, which leads to um, why, we div- why we engage in an Eightfold Path and what we are emptying ourselves of. And so the Buddha taught emptiness in a way that contradicted 
the way that was applied during his time as well as our time. Uh, emptiness, as the Buddha teaches us and as we learned uh, through those three suttas, is not uh, grasping after uh, some uh, faith-based reward of an environment of nothingness or emptiness. It's a very simple application of the word, meaning that we empty ourselves of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And so that's referring to a quality of mind rather than a physical place that we might find ourselves uh, established in. So it's a quality of mind that is empty of ignorance. And out of that um, emptiness of ignorance is a calm and peaceful mind that has the ability to be mindfully present for life as life occurs. So now we're going to look at um, dukkha, um, which is the, the whole point of the Buddha's Dhamma, is to understand dukkha and our contributions to our own dukkha. In this case, we can use the word stress, uh, although the, the application is much broader than, than that. Um, so that if I can empty myself of ignorance and so empty myself of, of the cause of my contributions to my own stress and understand the natural stresses that occur simply as a consequence of having a human life characterized by the Buddha as dukkha is, birth is dukkha, stress and suffering, sickness, aging and death, not getting what is desired, getting what is undesired. And he would always finish that description of dukkha by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha, uh, form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. So understanding the nature of dukkha is the whole point, and that's characterized as the three defilements. It manifests in the world as greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Because of ignorance of four noble truths, I am constantly driven by wanting more or concerned with what might be taken away or what I might lose, greed and aversion. And all of that is rooted in deluded thinking or a misunderstanding of who and what I am in relation to the world. So the Buddha's Dhamma has nothing, as, the, as Laura's introduction uh, uh, showed us, it's nothing, it, there's nothing magical or mystical or impractical about the Buddha's Dhamma. It's recognizing and abandoning our own contributions to greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. So, this is the uh, Kula Dukkha Kanda Sutta. Uh, Saturday will be the Maha. This is the lesser uh, discourse on Dukkha. Saturday is the greater. Uh, and there really is no, uh, that, that's not a relation to their importance or even their, uh, the, the size. Uh, it, it just has to do more with um, How do I describe this? It's, it's, not a, it's not a lesser importance, but it's a lesser significance within the Dhamma. Even though you, you really can't classify anything that the Buddha would teach or that we're teaching here as insignificant, it has a slightly lesser significance in the, um, if, if, you, if I can use this term, hierarchy and understanding. Even though there really isn't that, it's just that we build our understanding from the Eightfold Path. And so these are contributory or me and Ram used, I think we continue to have this sangha or, or discussion, uh, a secondary sutta to the primary sutta, such <clears throat> as dependent origination for noble truths of the Eightfold Path. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying with the Sakins in the Banyan Grove at Kapilavatu. Mahanama, Siddhartha Gautama's cousin, one of many, 
that were in the original Sangha, approached the Buddha, bowed, and sat to one side. Mahanama had a question for his cousin and teacher. I understand your Dhamma teaches the three defilements of the mind. Greed is a defilement of the mind. Aversion is a defilement of the mind. Deluded thinking is a defilement of the mind. So a defilement is something that makes whatever it is a part of impure. Even though, Mahanama continues, even though I understand your Dhamma in this manner, meaning he, he understands what the words are, Greed, aversion, and deluded thinking invade my mind and remain. When I realize this thought, when I realize this, the thought follows, what quality do I continue to cling to when greed, aversion, and deluded thinking invade my mind and remain? So Mahanama is asking for a conceptual answer where the Buddha gives him a direct answer. The Buddha responds, Mahanama, it is the very qualities of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking that you continue to cling to. The qualities of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, we all know what that is. We all know what greed is. We all know what aversion is. Two sides of the same coin. And we all know what deluded thinking is. How do we know what deluded thinking is? That really is a loaded question that I'd be surprised if any of you can answer, but I'm going to ask that. Well, How do we know where our thinking is deluded? Well, if, if we're... Notice that thing from the, from the old Buddha, the, <laughs> yeah. the debate... If, Jumping up and down. If we, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, we take I'm not these making things fun of, of anybody's practice. The same two sides of the same coin: greed and aversion. Whichever one we flip and catch and hold or identify with, that's deluded thinking. If I asked the right person. Thank you, Michael. Oh, I just kind of comment, uh, please. Well, what, you know, as a consequence of our existence, our, our minds are deluded. So, right from anything set forth from there is going to be our thinking, our thoughts are going to be deluded, so to say. Yeah, and so if we're monitoring our own behavior through a well-concentrated mind, it is our behavior that tells us we're deluded. Do I want more or do I want less of what's occurring? Think about that, just that thought. Do I want more or less of what's occurring? Do I want more or less of that bald guy talking right now? Why is that a ridiculous, foolish, immature, or really irrational expectation? Because it doesn't matter. Because it's what's occurring. It can't be any different than it is. So what's my op- what is my option in this moment in my life? I can either accept what's occurring... Or I can lose my mind by thinking I need to approve of this in some matter. And I approve, I think that I need to approve of what's occurring because my mind is deluded. It's lacking in understanding of four basic noble truths. That is dukkha. And so some minds say, well, how do I avoid it? You can't avoid it. You can only attend to it. Meaning you, ha- you attend to the quality of your mind in this moment. Wise restraint. You heard me say over and over again, not that I mind saying it, that dukkha is practiced at the moment of contact, right here, as our life unfolds, because that's the only moment that we can affect in any different way, and how can we affect it by what we're holding in mind, or the present quality of our mind. And if that mindfulness is framed by the Eightfold Path, there will be no reaction, and hence no contribution in this moment to dukkha. So this moment might be a moment that is characterized as the human aspect of sickness or aging 
but there won't be any reaction to it because I'll understand it. As a consequence for me to have this incredible life that I've had, and it really is incredible, you might not think so, but I do. As a consequence of me having that human life, I also have to accept that it comes along with sickness and aging. Learning to accept that frees me up of any reaction to it and allows me to stay present and I would say actually learn from what it means to be a human being. I had a great friend many years ago. His name was Robert Wolf and he wrote this book, What It Is to Be Human. It has nothing to do with Buddhism. But it's, ama- it's an amazing book that I won't get into. You can still find it, read it. It's a short little book. Um, but the whole point of what the Buddha is, the whole point of that little book is how important it is to be a human being. Why wouldn't I be a human being? Or what causes me to not be a human being? My preoccupation with dukkha rooted in a fabrication of who I am. So that fabrication, living within a fabrication, means I'm not living my life. I'm living my own dream of my life. And that's where all stress arises. Because the dream is always shattered. There's always something that's going to come along in our life and shatter my dream of myself. I can't play center field for the Yankees. Or... You know, my Tesla that I'm picking up tomorrow is delayed. Oh, how can that happen to me? Or something actually happened to me and I got some kind of diagnosis today that I don't like. Do I lose my mind over these human moments? Or do I stay present for them? And in that presence is where all of life occurs. That's also, by the way, an experience of eternity. I won't get into it. It is only when these Buddha continues, it is only when these qualities are not abandoned within you that you continue to be entangled in worldly affairs and you continue to cling to sensuality. Sensuality is how we contact with the world. There's a sensuality tied to it or um, there's a, a sensual response to even my own ideas. We become enamored with our, my ideas and they feel good. So I always fall back in them, even though eventually they lead to more pain and suffering. It is only when these qualities are abandoned within you that that you remain disentangled in worldly affairs and you no longer cling to sensuality. So if they're there, if we recognize a moment of dukkha, a moment of stress, again, it tells us that it's not the stressor that's the problem that we need to eliminate. It's my thinking about the stressor that I need to adjust, isn't it? Because life occurs. There's always going to be something that occurs in life that if my mind is rooted in ignorance and immature mind, that I think I need to approve of. And as soon as I think that I need to approve of it, I like it or I I don't like it, I've lost my mind because it's what's occurring. So the only option, again, I ever have at any point in my life is radical acceptance. In the most radically accepting example of this is from the most radical thinker humans have ever had, Siddhartha Gautama. He figured out this one simple thing. i got to stop bothering myself by ignorance. I have to understand what I am. And then I can stop doing what I've been doing up until this point. It is only when these qualities are abandoned within you that you remain disentangled in worldly affairs and you no longer cling to sensuality even though a skillful disciple... Now, the Buddha is going to explain to his cousin why it's not enough just to understand what greed, aversion, and deluded thinking is. Even though a skillful disciple understands the stress, the despair, the drawback of sensual indulgence, 
if they have not developed concentration and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence and unskillful mindfulness, meaning I'm going to do this to be the world's greatest meditator, or I heard that this meditation practice, that this person did it for 140 hours straight and they awakened, so I'm going to do that. No, the Buddha taught us how to meditate and he taught the framework for that meditation. Concentration and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence. Remember the second to the third level of, of deepening jhana meditation. We first take sensual, we, we take pleasure in the experience of seclusion and then we take pleasure in the experience of concentration. It's not a... Um, it's not a grasping after kind of pleasure, is it? It's simply the recognizing that in this moment, in that moment I'm concentrated. And I take pleasure in that concentration because I know what it's going to bring me. Concentration and, ple- and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence and unskillful mindfulness or an even deeper level of jhana and peacefulness, they can still be distracted by sensuality. The Buddha is now talking about the ever-deepening levels of jhana that we can still be distracted by sensuality. So he's answering Mahanama's question. Mahanama, you can infer, is rather enamored with his, his Dhamma practice. I'm practicing the Dhamma. My cousin's the big guy. I got everything going for me. I'm going to be awakened in about 18 minutes. Why is he not going to be awakened in 18 minutes? Because of all the conditions he's put on it that he's part of this great sangha, his, his cousin is the big teacher, and he's so brilliant that he's only going to need about 18 minutes of this practice. Instead of, I think I can awaken in 18 minutes. Take a breath and forget it. Take a breath and forget the fact that your cousin is the Buddha, or you happen to know that brilliant bald guy in Frenchtown or you're part of this, the world's greatest sangha. It is. Don't think that way. We're just doing something that is the utmost ordinary thing any human being can be and do, is be a human being. It's when we're acting in an extraordinary way because of a fabricated mind that we can't do these simple little things, which is say, yes, I'm a human being. So, John, is it wrong intention that doesn't most people's dharma practice? Yes, thank you. The second factor of the Eightfold Path is right intention. Right intention is in this moment, again, the Dhamma can only be practiced in in this moment. In this moment, it is my intention to recognize craving for and clinging to fabricated ideas. Thoughts that are rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And again, how do I know? Matt explained it before, from my own experience. Is there a stressor in this moment? And then identify the stressor. And if your stressor is outside of yourself, take another look and take a breath. Because it can't be. The world has to unfold the way it has to unfold. And how does it has to have to unfold? Exactly as it is. It doesn't mean that, there, that the next moment something else might change in the world and worldly conditions or even in our relationship with one individual. But most importantly... In the next moment, I can change my mind. I can recognize and do exactly what Siddhartha is teaching his cousin here. I can recognize and abandon greed, aversion, and deluded thinking as it manifests in my life. 
the Buddha continues, the skillful disciple who develops the framework and guidance of the Eightfold Path, um, this, this is my commentary, I'm sorry. The skillful disciple who develops the framework and guidance of the Eightfold Path will develop wise restraint and will continually lessen their craving for and clinging to sensual indulgence and sensual distraction, the Buddha's words. But when a skillful disciple understands the stress, the despair, the drawback of sensual indulgence, if they have, the, if they have developed concentration and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence and unskillful mindfulness, or an even deeper level of jhana and peacefulness, they cannot be distracted by sensuality. So that's a lot of words where the Buddha is just saying, just keep going. As you deepen your, your jhana practice, it will, you'll be able to maintain the refined mindfulness that keeps you free and disentangled from the world. I'll read it again. But when a skillful disciple, uh, the word skillful impl- implies that there's a skill to be developed here within the Dhamma. There's something for us to do. What is it? The first and most basic skill is concentration. And then there's other there's seven other skills to develop. The other seven skills of the Eightfold Path. But when a skillful disciple understands the stress, the despair, the drawback of sensual indulgence, if they have developed concentration and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence and unskillful mindfulness, or an even deeper level of jhana and peacefulness, they cannot be distracted by sensuality. So, excuse me, as we begin our Dhamma practice and we start developing some success from it, the wise Dhamma practitioner, and and this is really where the Sangha comes in, it's it's the importance of continued participation in the Sangha because we won't get so enamored with our, our Dhamma practice, our meditation practice, that we think we're doing something extraordinary. It's the Sangha that keeps our feet on the ground. It's the Sangha that keeps reminding us, yeah, all these other schmoes are doing the same thing, just like me. There's nothing different. And so there's nothing extraordinary about me or my practice or my methods. It allows us to not apply greed, aversion, and deluded thinking to our own Dhamma practice and develop an even deeper level of Dhamma, of understanding. Friends, Before my own self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, two important things mentioned there, but I'll leave it, I came to understand with right view that sensual indulgence is stressful, giving in to what I desire. And again, aversion is just the other side of desire. It's wanting something with a strong desire that something or someone be different than they are. I came to understand that with right view, that sensual indulgence is stressful. It brings despair and it has drawbacks. But as long as I had not developed concentration and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence and unskillful mindfulness or an even deeper level of jhana and peacefulness, I did not claim that I was not distracted by sensuality. In other words, I didn't say anything about what I was doing as extraordinary. He didn't claim to be an awakened person. In fact, he didn't claim to be anything of any value to the world until he awakened. And remember, the Buddha didn't start teaching, he didn't start forming a Sangha or lay the groundwork for anything until he awakened. That's not to say he wasn't helpful to people along the way. He was. He was a very compassionate human being. He classified himself in in this sentence Before my self-awakening, when I was an unawakened bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a human being 
and most human beings are, that's imbued with great compassion for other human beings. But a bodhisattva is an unawakened human being, one that could cause harm because of their compassion without the wisdom. And he's also telling Mahanama that I was just like you at that time. Yes, thank you, Ram. He's, again, he's referring and pointing Mahanama back to the ordinariness of what he's doing because of what he's now Mahanama's cousin, the teacher, is doing. I did it. And I had to go, and he's also saying, I had to go through the same things you're going through. I had to learn these, deep in, these ever deeper, deeper levels of Dhamma practice and the practical application of it as it arises, as my own um, uh, hindrance that might draw me away from practice is, is coming in, is coming into, into my mind. I did not claim that I was not distracted by sensuality. He admitted that it was his own sensual indulgence that was causing him to lose his Dhamma practice. But when I came to understand the stress, the despair, the drawback of sensual indulgence, and I had developed concentration and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence and unskillful mindfulness, Another example would be just getting together with an unfocused group and doing some kind of generic meditation, maybe not even guided or maybe guided, but not within this framework. The Buddha is also referring to that because it doesn't have the broader framework to deepen concentration or refine mindfulness. I'm going to just read it again. And I had not developed concentration and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence and unskillful mindfulness. Remember the Buddha studied with other teachers. Or an even deeper level of jhana and peacefulness, then I did not claim to not be distracted by sensuality. The Buddha studied with Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta and mastered their meditation practices that all resolved in magical and mystical uh, establishments in non-physical realms. And remember, the Buddha mastered those and then he recognized them as unskillful and unmindful. And even the deeper levels that he learned did not lead him to deeper levels of concentration. He was only continued to be distracted by the sensuality of now attaining a, a dimension of neither nothingness or neither perception or non-perception or any other magical or mystical realms that were taught were important to, to chase after he realized, Siddhartha realized, that that was just another distraction. Even the deeper levels that people think are meaningful are just a distraction. So the next section of this is understanding the allure, the drawback, and the release of clinging to sensuality. This is very similar to what you're going to hear um, in reference to on Saturday. Now, what is the allure of sensuality? There are five clinging fabrications of sensuality. Forms interpreted by the eye as agreeable, pleasing, endearing, and enticing. Sounds interpreted by the ears as agreeable, pleasing, and endearing. I'm not going to go through every one. It is a rather long sutta. Um, but aromas, etc., flavors, etc., tactile sensations, etc. Friends, whatever Buddha's pleasure, whatever the Buddha's words, whatever pleasure or happiness that one establishes independence on any of these five senses, that is a distracting allure of sensuality. Whenever I see something and need to see more of it, I've lost my mind. That doesn't mean that I can sit and with a, with a, with a beautiful sunset and not need it to be any different than it is. 
or I can sit with a wonderful conversation with someone and not need it to continue past its usefulness. Or I can have an encounter with someone that was wonderful and not attach myself to that person, to not cling to that person. There's even a saying that we have within our society. We take hostages for just that type of clinging. Or any other clinging to any type of idea or ideology that I might have. And I'll simply point out what's occurring in the world right now to a great extent is a war between people's ideologies. Now, the Buddha continues... Now, what is the drawback of sensuality? Well, here is an example. When one's occupation, whether accounting or plowing, whether, whether trading goods or attending to cattle, whether an archer or attending a king, whatever one's occupation, they are subject to changing, whether to harassment by, in, harassment by insects, to dying from thirst and hunger, and the whole mass of stress and suffering, meaning no matter what we're engaged in, as far as commerce or to take care of ourselves, we're still subject to the whole mass of stress and suffering. This drawback of sensuality, this mass of stress and suffering, that is visible here and now, has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, the drawback is sensuality. Giving in to my own sensual needs. And again, I'm not just talking about um, excuse me. Uh, sensual fulfillment in, in just the physical sense. I'm talking about sensual fulfillment in the ideological or the, the intellectual sense, meaning that my ideas are satisfying. And it is because I find my ideas so satisfying that I'm unwilling to let go of them even though my idea might cause me a lot of pain. An example would be the idea that I had that just one more drink or one more drug was going to bring me bliss, even though I knew it wouldn't from my own behavior. Or the next argument that I win. Or the next little bit of charity that I can force on the world might bring. Or anything that I think I might do to force change when change isn't ready, especially within myself. This is why you hear me say we need to be very gentle with ourselves. Why? So we can do just what the Buddha is, doing, is teaching us to do here. To recognize what needs to be abandoned and simply abandon it. Now, if a person gains little while striving and making effort, they will be sorrow, sorrowful and regretful. They will grieve and become distraught. Again, just in a, in a reaction to what's occurring. They will think all of my efforts have been useless and fruitless. Again, the inference is instead of recognizing all the good things that happen, the 99 and 1, remember that. This reaction is also the Buddha's words. This reaction is also a drawback of sensuality, this mass of stress and suffering that is visible here and now, and it has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, the drawback again is sensuality grasping onto or craving after and clinging to that thing that I desire. And again, notice the Buddha's not saying here, you must get rid of everything. He's just saying, don't attach yourself to anything. He's not telling anybody here, you got to give up your gold or your silver or your big house or your nice clothes or anything. But change your thinking. Also, not give up your misery. Yes. In fact, it's so important to not give it up, understand where it comes from. 
If a person gains wealth while striving and making effort, they will experience distress protecting their wealth, thinking, how can I keep my wealth from kings and thieves? How will I protect my wealth from fire or floods? How will I protect my wealth from greedy heirs? Again, you would only think that way if you were attached to your wealth, if you were identified by your wealth and felt that your your whole life depended on what your wealth defined. And we all know people like that. We might, have, we might excuse me, we might even have been people like that in our lives before we came to the Dhamma. And again, I'll give you an example. And it, this, the understanding of this came on me rather subtle, meaning it was probably present in my mind for a while before I realized it. But I realized at one point in my Dhamma practice that I always felt better about who I was. And I always had more confidence going out in the world if I had a nice thick wallet. And those times when I didn't have a lot of wallet, I wasn't so... I wasn't so effective out in the world. I wasn't so confident. Um, I didn't do a lot of socializing or even other things. And not, not, I'm not talking about it in a practical way. Obviously, when you don't have a lot of money, you can't do a lot of things. <coughs> when I didn't have a lot of money, I didn't feel good enough to do a lot of things. And, and again, now I don't have any money and I feel good enough to do just about anything except the things that I can't do anymore. But, <laughs> don't think, excuse me. But it, it, having that thought was so liberating to me because I, find, I realized that I got rid of all of that. It was an expression of me not needing to be anything other than what I was, whether I was broke or rich, because I've, had a, I've experienced both. And I would say that I was more agitated the times that I had a lot of things to protect than I was when I didn't have so many things to protect. Because the more I had, the more, the more they occupied my mind, even if it wasn't right there. Whatever was in my house was me, and I brought my house wherever I went. And it's hard to do to carry that load with you. When you're identified with your things, that's what we do, though. We carry our stuff wherever we go. Or we're worried that it might not be there when we get back. The Buddha says, even as they protect their wealth, this is why it's not there when we get back, Kings and thieves make off with it. Fire and floods destroy it. And greedy heirs, I just went through that, and greedy heirs make off with it. It's true, isn't it? The same thing that bothers us today bothered people back then. Kings might take it, governments might, might take it, tax it out of us, out of our out of our, our wallets. A fire might destroy it or a flood. Or we might not get along with our the remaining people in our family. <laughs> and, and so, besides the king aspect of this, I've experienced every part of this, and if I attribute the king to governments, we all have, haven't we? Mm-hmm. It's just a part of human life. It's not to be avoided because it can't be avoided. There's always going to be kings, there's always going to be thieves, there's always going to be fires and floods, and there might be even problems in probate. <laughs> they then will be sorrowful and regretful. Again, because of what we're clinging to. Because of the, the decisions based on delusion that I've made. I will then be sorrowful and regretful. I will grieve and become distraught. What was once mine is gone. This drawback of sensuality, this mass of stress and suffering that is visible here and now, while I'm reacting, while I've lost my mind over what I've lost, it's visible here and now. And this has sensuality as its source and its establishment. 
the need for constant sensual fulfillment. Simply put, this drawback is sensuality. Every one of these drawbacks that we can identify is rooted in sensuality. It is preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause that kings quarrel with kings. And again, this, this is still happening and it's been happening for 2,600 years and before that. The source, the cause that kings quarrel with kings, nobles quarrel with nobles, Brahmins with Brahmins, householders with householders, parents with children, children with parents, children with siblings, and friends with friends. Phew! And we all do that, don't we? And then we wonder, why is this going on? Why can't this be any different? Rodney King says, why can't we all get along? Because we don't now know how to. We want to, don't we? As, as human beings, we want to get along with each other, and it bothers us when we can't. But we, we tend to blame other people and ourselves when we can't, instead of trying to figure out why we can't. And that's the big thing that Siddhartha tried to figure out, and he did. He figured out why we couldn't all get along. When conflicted, they will attack each other with fists, with sticks, or clubs, or knives, and they incur extreme pain or death. And we've been doing it ever since the Buddhist times. That's just the client leaving? Yeah. We're good? Yeah. Okay. Here again is the drawback of sensuality. This massive stress and suffering that is visible here and now has sensuality as its source and its establishment simply put the drawback is sensuality. It is, again, the Buddha says, it is the preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause, that human beings wear armor and use swords, spears and arrows, while charging in formation into battle with other human beings. 2,600 years ago, the Buddha thought that was pretty remarkable that human beings needed to kill each other. And we still are. All the great philosophy that has taken place, all the great religions, all the great laws hasn't changed anything, has it? Because the underlying ignorance is still present. So when the Buddha Buddha made that declaration of the first noble truth, he was also saying, we don't seek salvation because it can't be found here. We seek understanding. We don't seek escape. We seek understanding. Here again is a drawback of sensuality. This massive stress and suffering that is visible here and now has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, the drawback is sensuality. Um, Friends, it is preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause that human beings take what is not theirs, ambush others, commit adultery, and when caught, kings have them tortured for their misdeeds. The implication wasn't yet. We still don't stop. They are flogged and beaten with clubs. Their hands and feet cut off. Their ears and noses too. They are subject to many indignities and deprivations. Here again there is the drawback of sensuality. This mass of stress and suffering. That is visible here and now and has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, the drawback is sensuality. You could almost laugh at the absurdity of this, couldn't you? Because the Buddha is describing everything that human beings do to each other as a result of ignorance and then saying, here again, it's the drawback of sensuality. And I'll, um, 
Friends, it is the preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause that human beings engage in bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct. Having lived their lives as such, upon death and the breakup of their body, there is only continued deprivation. What does the Buddha mean by that? He's not saying that, he's not predicting that there's more suffering. Read it carefully. Upon the breakup of the body, there is only the continued deprivation. Nothing, that was a completely wasted life. Nothing occurred to change it. Here again, that is a drawback of sensuality, this massive stress and suffering, that is now only continued deprivation. Again, now we are alive, but we're continued this ignorance. And the Buddha teaches us, here again is a drawback of sensuality, this massive stress and suffering, that is now only continued deprivation. And it has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, again, the drawback is sensuality. Um, I'm going to finish this. I hope you all can stay with me. The condition and the... Um, yeah, I that's what it said. The conditioning and inherent distraction of false dharmas. Again, this is uh, present during the Buddhist time. Uh, and this is any organized um, belief system or just an idea that would be distracting. Friend Mahana, Maha, Mahana, I can't say it now, Mahanaha, am I saying Mahanama? Once I was near Rajagaha on Vulture Peak Mountain, there was a group of Nagantas at Block Rock on the slopes of Isagili. Nagantas were followers of the Nagantas the, the sect, which, is, which was in, uh, part of the Jain sect, still prevalent today. The Nagantas were practicing continuous standing in order to experience severe, sharp, and, and racking pain. As I engaged from my seclusion, I went to the Nagantas and asked them, why are you practicing continuous standing that develops severe, sharp, and racking pain? Again, because of their belief systems. One of the Gantas responded, the Naganta Nataputa knows and sees all. He claims to have knowledge and wisdom continually established within him. Naganta has taught us that our past evil actions will be exhausted with the painful with the painful ascetic practice. He further taught us that if we were restrained in body, speech, and thoughts in the present, there will be no evil actions in the future. So this type of asceticism is what Siddhartha practiced during his uh, search for understanding, mastered these, and rejected them. So with the destruction of past evil deeds through these, pan these painful ascetic practices, and with no evil actions in the present, there will be no flow of the results of evil into the future. With no flow of evil actions into the future, there is no there is the ending of evil actions, meaning you could interrupt karma by these ascetic practices, by deprivation. With the ending of evil actions, there is the ending of stress. With the ending of stress, there is the ending of feelings, and the end, with the ending of feelings, stress and suffering will be exhausted. We, the Nagantas, approve this teaching. We prefer this teaching and are gratified this teaching, meaning they're saying this is our practice. The Buddha responds, do you know that you ex existed in the past or that you did not exist in the past? No, friend. Well, do you know that you did evil deeds in the past? No, friend. Again, the Buddha is just being practical. How could you know? And do you know, that, so why would you, the implication, why would you be doing these cleansing rituals if you don't even know you did anything? 
And do you know that stress resulting from these evil deeds has been exhausted, or that the stress resulting from these evil deeds remains to, to be exhausted, or even that the exhaustion of the stress resulting from these evil deeds can be exhausted? Again, a complete misunderstanding of karma. Do you believe that what you did yesterday is having an effect today? And if you do, what can you do about it? Can you exhaust that stress now? No. He's just asking Mahana, I can't think of his name now. Mahanama. Mahanama to be practical. And he's telling us 2,600 years ago. Can you change any of these things that you might have thought you're being punished for now? Or that you need to change so you're not punished in the future? No, friend, the Nagata said. Well then, do you know the abandoning of these evil and unskillful qualities and the development of skillful qualities right here and now? No, friend. Well, the Buddha says, friend, it seems as if you do not know if you did or did not exist in the past. It seems as if you do not know if you did or did not do evil acts in the past. If you don't know if you existed in the past, how could you know if you did evil in the past? And if you don't know, why, why, could, how, why are you letting that affect your mind now? You, the Buddha continues, you do not know that you did any evil acts in the past or if you even experienced any stress arriving from evil actions that, that there is stress remaining to be exhausted. Meaning if you did, excuse me, if you did something that you would characterize as an evil act, it still was done in the past. It's the reactionary result of that is only present because of your recreation of it in the present moment. And where is that recreation occurring? In my mind. Conditioned thinking. You do not know that with the exhaustion of the current stress, that all stress will be exhausted. Meaning it's done. Impermanence has intervened. Remember how when Buddha met Angulamila, the murder, I won't tell the whole story because it's a long sutta, but he met a man who, who committed 99 murders. And he didn't tell Angulamila, you have to be murdered 99 times before you can free yourself, before you can be liberated. He said, no, Angulamila, take to this Dhamma and you will awaken. And Angulamila did. Furthermore, again, it was, it's, it's such an important um, rebuttal of the common usage of karma during the Buddhist time and our time, but also our belief that we're bad persons, that we do not deserve to awaken, that we've done something so horrible that we can't forgive ourselves. We, we have to hold that in mind. And where is that rooted? Greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, that I need to be different than I am. Furthermore, you do not know the abandonment of evil and unskillful qualities, and you do not know the development of evil and unskillful qualities right here and right now. You're not mindful of your own actions, is what the Buddha is saying. So how can you make any judgment of yourself if you don't even know what you're doing? This being the case, there are those who are cruel and murderous evildoers. This is such a profound, and I won't get too deep into it, on psychology. This being the case, there are those who are cruel and murderous evildoers. He's saying there are people that have lost their minds because of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. That even though they might be trying to, to change that, there are those who are cruel and, and murderous evildoers seeking change 
they join with the Nagantas. He's saying they're going in the wrong direction. He's not judging them harshly. He's saying they're, going, they're not going to find any relief through what you're teaching. He was, he was being loving in that. Some people would, they, even today, they would say, well, you can't say that. You should never act that way against other people. That was the kindest thing that Siddhartha could do at that moment. And they came to him, remember, asking him. But friend Gautama, it is not true that pleasure is attained through pleasure. Pleasure is to be attained through pain. This is the argument. If pleasure is attained through pleasure, then King Bimbisara would attain great pleasure as he lives in greater pleasure than even you. Surely you have said this rashly and without reflecting on your words. The skillful question in the context of the Dhamma is, who lives in greater pleasure, King Bimbisara or Master Gotama? Who do you think? Of course, we know it's a loaded question and the answer is Gotama. Yes, friend Gotama, we did speak rashly and without reflection. Who does live in greater pleasure, King Bimbisara or Master Gotama? The Buddha says, I will counter-question you. Answer as you see fit. Can King Bimbisara, without moving his body or uttering a word, dwell sensitive to pure pleasure for seven days and nights, or even six or five or four or three or two, or even for one day or night? No, friend, he can't. Then the Buddha says, Now, without moving my body, without doing anything, without changing anything, or uttering a word, and again, that's uttering a word would be even the, going into the, the practice of chanting, or even pleading or prayer, without uttering a word. Again, he's, 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 he's talking about all the practices that were foolish during his meaning not within the framework of the Dhamma, as well as today. Now, without moving my body or uttering a word, I do dwell sensitive to pure pleasure for a day and a night. And he could stop there. He's saying that I have developed concentration or refined mindfulness, that I can dwell in this permanently. For a day and a night, for two days and nights, for three or four or six, or even for seven days and nights. Now he's not, again, if he was talking about just meditating, he would have said, I go and meditate. He's saying, I, I dwell sensitive. That's different than saying I'm, I'm practicing jhana seven days straight. Why, what do you think? Who dwells in greater pleasure, King Bimbisar or myself? Then the Gantha says, it is clear Master Gautama dwells in a pleasure greater, greater than the king. Now remember, the Buddha left, he could, have be, he could have been a king next to King Bimbisara with his own kingdom. So there's another relevancy to this that shouldn't be lost. This is what was said by the great teacher. Mahanama was delighted by the Buddha's words. That's the end of the sutta. So it's, a, it's similar to the sutta on the, the lesser and greater pleasure too, the lesser or greater understanding. So we can go through life thinking that it is by attainment, whether it's physical things or attainment of intellectual ideologies that we can somehow uh, insulate ourselves from the common dukkhas that happen. We can't, the Buddhist teaching. And as we gain understanding, as we gain in human maturity, we learn that. And so again, we're able to practice radical acceptance in this moment, wise restraint and life as life occurs. It's been a long class, so I ask you to um, I, I want to hear what you all have to say, especially if you have a question that you're um, confused about, but let's keep it 
rather brief. And I'll go online uh, to Brian first. Hello, Brian. Hi, John. Um, I, I like what Matt said in the beginning. If it's at the point of contact and you either want more of that or less of that, you've, you're diluted. Yep. And it, it's accepting and abandoning those two extremes and just experiencing life as life is occurring. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole enchilada. And it, they, again, you hear me say all the time when you get mad at me that it's simple and easy. It is. So stop thinking it's hard. Thanks, Brian. How are you, Kevin? I'm just going across. People are wondering why I'm, I'm doing really well. And sorry for interrupting there, John. I joined a little bit late. I'm glad you joined us. Yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, good to be here. Um, I like I love the radical acceptance. I like uh, what Brian was just saying too. And I guess a question for me is: is um, I understand a lot about the dukas and being able to, you know, um, and how the senses fit into this this concept and letting go, but and maybe this comes through other uh, suttas, is about desire, right? And the, the mm-hmm. need to kind of act. It's not just about being and, and kind of letting go. I'm sure there's some kind of, you know, maybe this is part of the Eightfold Path and right action and right speech and things like that. But where does, where does this concept of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the desire to, to interact with people yeah. and stuff, how does that Thank you, Kevin, for the question. It's a it's a profound question, and it tells me that you you are practicing the Dhamma as intended. Because that question comes from uh, understanding where we're going and what happens when I let go of all self uh, referential views and self referential desire. Because we feel um, prior to understanding that in order for me to be motivated just to live my life, there has to be some kind of self-referential desire. But there doesn't. The simple understanding of and being mindfully present for this moment, as a, as a mature human being, I will know how to act. I, I don't have to preload my actions, in other, you know, just to put it that way. A mature human being will know how to act. I don't need any kind of desire, but there is a word for the kind of desire that keeps us focused on the Dhamma, and it's Chanda, which also happened to be the name of Siddhartha's horse. Chanda simply means skillful desire. So the the desire for awakening is a skillful desire. We don't eliminate um, desire in that sense, meaning as a human being, we will have things that we want to do, and Mm -hmm. We'll, we'll be able to do these things we'll be able to do these things with a pure mind so as an example um, I might decide to go buy some gold today it's a good idea so I do and I actually get it it's really nice and shiny and it feels good and it looks nice on my mantelpiece but then I move away from it and I leave it there and it's done it doesn't drive me to have to get all the gold I can afford and pile it up because one piece looks so good to me. That's enough. I'm present. But I might be smart. I might live in this world and, and have the... And I'm not saying we should do this. I'm not, this is not a recommendation. It's, it's, a, it's a scenario. I might decide because of what I think and what I know and what ideologies that I should buy some gold because we might have some financial difficulties. That's not rooted in greed. It's a practical thing that I might do in the present moment. There's nothing wrong with it. But if I'm doing it because I need more gold because it makes me feel good or I want, I want Ram to know 
how much gold I have, now I'm in trouble. Because a king might take that gold, or a thief might take that gold, or it might float away in a, in a flood. Or, or we might go back on the gold standard. <laughs> well, again, I'm, just, I'm just making the point. So that, it, it's such an important question you ask, Kevin. Um, <coughs> I, let me, and I can answer it another way, too, just for my own example. I have much less desire than I ever had in my life, and my life is so much better. And in fact, I say this often, that most people that looked at my life would think it, it was excruciatingly boring. And it, and it would be to most people. I'm not saying other people should live the way I do. But my life every moment is more... Is, it, my life right now is more fulfilling than it's ever been in my life. And nothing's going on. <laughs> you know? It, 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 because, and it's, all, it's, it's the Dhamma. And I would bet that all of you are experiencing that. And I would bet you, you, you have experienced that as well, Kevin. That there's yes, things you've yes. abandoned that, you, you, that just didn't serve you and you're, you're better off for it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So... Again, a, a great you. a great question. Thank you for it. Uh, you Jane, for how are you? I'm well. Thank you for the teaching. Um, I think I've shared this before. Prior to my practice, I totally was out of my mind. I mean, trying to change the things about my life that I didn't like and getting more obsessed and more upset when I couldn't do that. And then one day Matt said, Duca exists. You know, uh, there's... <laughs> That's the first noble truth, and it, that was truly a defining moment in my life. Yeah, you were because ready to hear it. Because that became my yeah. journey, and so. Yeah. And Thank you. even though you were out of your mind, Jane, you lived a rather successful life, correct? I mean, from from the out, outward appearances, at least. I put on a good show. Yeah. <laughs> and again, yeah, we all did. I mean, I, you know, I ran a pretty good business, and... Uh, uh, I'm talking enough about myself, but yeah, you, you, you realize now that you, you were out of your mind, but you're still functioning in a world. So that uh, what we what we're able to achieve in the world does not necessarily mean that we're of a certain value, and we certainly shouldn't look at it that way either. But thank you, Jay. Um, Dev, I, would, do, you, do you have anything you'd like to say tonight? No need to if you if you don't want to. Um, well, I'd just like to. Thank Kevin. He uh, he actually he nailed the exact question I I, I had in mind. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Devin. Again, thank you, Kevin. This is this is how a well-informed, well-focused sangha works. <laughs> Shane, it's good to see you tonight. I'm glad you glad you came and joined us. Uh, I'm glad to be here. And again, nobody has to say anything if you'd rather not. It's okay too. Um, I I think I'm going to take noble silence, but I just want to say thank you for everyone accepting me back in after a few months. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, you're, to have you back. you're always welcome always here. Welcome. You're just more welcome when you come every week. <laughs> you're, you're always welcome here, Shane. Hello, my friend Michael. Hi, John. Um, I think uh, for me, anyhow, the way I, I see this, uh, my perspective is, is that like, uh, as long as we have, um, as long as we identify with the aggregates, we're going to have suffer from uh, stress and suffering in our lives. Yeah. Everything that occurs in our day, um, moment by moment, there will be challenges. Okay? So our minds, we have to actually our, the mind is one of the aggregates, okay? And that's where we 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 form our our what we would consider to be our self. Okay? Yeah. But why should we form 
a version of ourselves from a mind that is deluded. So I've come to that understanding that well, the mind is basically in the driver's seat up there and it kind of determines all the things that I like or I dislike or I attach to or I let go. Yeah. So that to me is a game that I've been playing. I go back and forth. So then I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to let the mind sail off in the sailboat out into the middle of the lake. And I'm just going to be here and not, <laughs> let, let, the, not let my mind determine how I feel in relation to what it interprets. Okay. And I think that kind of works for me. So I am a firm believer that we have to create distance from the ideas and we have to recognize what we are not so that we are left where we are and that is peace and tranquility. That's mm -hmm. right. That's great, Michael. Yeah, the, that distance is the, the seclusion, isn't it? You know, it's, that's what we're secluding ourselves from. It's actually from that clinging. Also. Yeah, establish in, in on our cushion, and then we can take it out of our off our cushion, as as Michael was saying, and, and apply it that way. Thank you. Hello, my friend Julia. Hello. Um, thank you very much for teaching, and uh, I'm too. I'm very happy to be back. Um, the only thing I have to say is, let's see if I can say it properly. Well, I, I find that when I'm present, then I'm not personalizing things as much. Yeah. When I yeah. just keep myself present. And when I don't personalize things so much, then I'm actually accepting the things as they come and just reacting to them. Like I almost yeah. find myself in a way almost watching myself just react to the things that's going on. You lost your mind. <laughs> yeah. You're, I mean, you are. Really, I mean, that's what exactly. you're describing, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah so... You know, I find that being present is very, very important. That, that's the key right there. Yeah, yeah and, I, and it makes those moments much more significant, even though they're, they're the ordinary moments of our lives. But exactly. Now, because I'm present for it. I'm completely there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you, John. Laura, thank you so much for reading oh, the... Thank you, John. And, yeah, Michael and Julia, that was... That's great. It's like this fine balance, like, between the utmost having the utmost concentration and being present but then sometimes like Michael was saying it's funny like the mind itself is a form and like you can get so caught yeah. up in things you just kind of need to let them like, sail away yeah. pass away mm -hmm. yeah just so go out on that like, peaceful lake they describe like the perfect <laughs> yeah exactly balance you know yeah. it's not an out of mind or out of body experience or transcendental meditation that's yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, it's not that. It, it's uh, the. It, it, you mentioned transcendental meditation. That was really the first real method. I did some dabbling in it, and it was effective for, in in what it wanted to do for a couple of years, and then it just. There, I mean, there's other reasons why I stopped doing it, but there was no framework for it. Right. There was just this meditation practice, and even the instruction. Julia knows well well about this too, um, and it, it's one of the most popular forms of meditation, which tells me that it works for a lot of people. For me, I wanted to understand why my mind, why am I so frustrated and angry and confused, mm -hmm. and and it did not bring anything into that, but it wasn't designed to. There's no structure to do that. 
and we have it here. It's one of the things, you know, I always wanted to, I, I never wanted to change my mind because I didn't think I, I needed to. And then when I finally realized I had to, <laughs> I was glad that there was a way to do it, you know. But it wasn't until I came across the Dhamma that I realized that my, it was the way that I thought was such a mess. Because I thought I was the world's greatest thinker, even though, you know, I mean, I did a lot of, I, 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 I might get the impression my life was one big mess. It wasn't. I had a good business and I did a lot of good things too, but underneath all of that, life sucked. It was just awful, you know, no matter how good it was or how bad it was on the outside. And it was because of the way that I was thinking. Thank you, Lord. Dharma teacher David, I forgot. I'll get back to you. I'm good tonight, John. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Dharma teacher Ron. John. Um, yeah, whenever I read this sutta, um, the thing that jumps out at me is his emphasis time and again on concentration and pleasure apart from sensual indulgence. Yeah. That pleasure part is, uh, I mean, we, we know about the, the concentration part, but um, the pleasure apart from sensual indulgence, that's, um, for me, it, it's almost harder to, to establish that. Um, it goes back to the, the greater and lesser pleasures yeah, it does. that he's talked about. To find that <clears throat> that uh, motivation to to keep going, you know, away from the, the sensual pleasures, because you've already you're establishing a, a pleasure in 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 your concentration and in your in your um, um, what's it called? The, uh, I want to run up and whisper into his ear. Uh, <laughs> what's well, like the second jhana that yeah that abiding it's home. the what yeah. what you're yeah, getting even, to even Rob, the first jhana right yeah. yeah is it is a mind that is empty of ignorance mm -hmm. right it's that it's that calm but to abiding. see that as pleasure yeah well that's what that is it it is it's there's a I almost said this earlier so I'll say it now there's there's a a, a saying in Hawaii Hawaiiana. Uh, when you give a gift to someone, one of the big, biggest, greatest gifts you could give a, a teacher of traditional uh, Hawaiian shamanism is an empty teak pole. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is what you're what you're signifying is that that the emptiness is the is the opportunity of everything. In other mm -hmm. words, a, a, a bowl with a lot of stuff in it is that's it. That's as far as you can go with it. But an empty bowl is mm -hmm. full of light. And this is the same idea. What we're we're emptying ourselves of all the things that cause us distress. You know, what's left? What's left in that mind? There's nothing there that, that is in conflict with anything. And that's what we're doing. And that's what you're experiencing. That's what you're recognizing. Yeah. And independent of... Maybe you could talk just about this for a minute or two, because it is a long class. Independent of what's going on in your immediate... Mm -hmm. World in your senses, in in your thinking, uh, yeah, those pleasures we we know, and uh, but to to see what comes up in in meditation, 
has actually to recognize the the pleasure in that uh, is um, that's an almost more important than than just the concentration. Yeah, and it, and that's just how it's taught, isn't yeah, it? To recognize yeah. it, yeah. to recognize it as a pleasurable thing. We right. take, we, yeah, we, because we you take get, pleasure you get in too, concentration. Yeah, I can get too hung up in just trying to develop concentration, you know, and it becomes a chore. Yeah, it becomes a, a battle uh, with you know the distractions. Yeah, uh, while as you as you start to recognize the pleasure of it. Uh, it it gets its own head of steam. Yep. And makes it it makes it uh, less arduous. Yeah. And again, that's why it's part of practice to recognize it, to have to see it. You have to see it. You have to see it. All right. Thank you, Ron. Dharma teacher Matt. John, thanks for the teaching tonight. Thanks, everybody. Um, yeah, Ron, what you're saying. Um, It's like that the pleasure that the Buddha is talking about there is really the absence of greed or aversion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just there's no greed or aversion there to distract from the presence of calm, abiding. Empty of ignorance. Yeah, and and the, 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 the resolution is in that emptiness, like you know, the, what we, the three sutras we just taught. It's just that, but it's it's a it's a dynamic emptiness, isn't it? It's not a static nothing emptiness. It's a it's where life occurs. It's the most dynamic our lives can be, and it's dynamic because we don't know what the next moment is going to bring. It's likely to be similar to this moment because that's how we live our lives. We live our lives within a certain structure. But the reason why why life becomes utterly boring, and I'm, and I'm sure it's boring to people, I'll just use an example of someone, uh, someone who has an awful lot of money and can have everything they want all the time. Then it just becomes a game of the next thing to keep yourself going. People with lesser financial capabilities use other things to distract. Or you get to the point of nothingness and emptiness. I don't need anything in this moment. In the next moment, I might there might be something to do, but it's not based on a sense of eye-making. It's, it's just simply as a human being. In other, in other words, I, there's medication that I have to take every day. I don't talk a lot about myself. That's not eye-making. It's what a human, a, a rational adult human being is doing. It's not because I want to live forever that I'm doing it. It's because I want to live right now as best as I can. Sometimes you just got to make a sandwich. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. I eat a, ate a lot more sandwiches because I don't want, I used to love cooking. Who asked me yesterday? Do I still want it? And I don't cook nearly as much as I used to. I used to like cooking three kind of elaborate meals a day. Uh, and I cook maybe one elaborate meal a month, but I eat good. Because I eat the sandwich instead of I don't need the seven course meal all the time. Um, let me just close this out, this class, and maybe this you know I'll probably talk more about this on um, Saturday, but not but and. But it's the preoccupation. The Buddha could almost as nearly describe the first noble truth as saying there is 
preoccupation as saying there is dukkha. Because it is the preoccupation with dukkha that robs us of this moment and robs us of this life. But when we can resolve that, then life doesn't need to be any different because we understand it can't be. And whatever occurs is, uh, as you won't know the reference, but as Maxwell Maltz used to say, it's a maximal moment. It's a peak there was a, a period in my life where there's some famous teachers who are talking about peak experiences in our human life. Well, the, the most peak experience, if you can put most in front of peak, would be to awaken, to know what's going on in this moment, wouldn't it be? To be present, whether it's something incredible happening or it's just this moment. Because whatever might be incredible is occurring just in this moment too. And then it's gone. Yeah. So what is more important? quality of my mind in this moment, free of dukkha, empty of it. That's where we're going. These classes are all built one on another, so I'm glad you're all following along or can catch up online. All right, that's enough for tonight. We'll finish with Meta. Any other questions from online or comments even? Good, because it's a late class. All right, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. So find your relaxed meditation posture and gently close your eyes, gently close your mouths. And take a moment to become mindful of your breath in your body and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind in your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. See you all soon. Good night, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.